Welcome to the Security Analysis Podcast. This podcast explores investment strategies, economics, personal finance, and stock analysis. It features real conversations and analysis to inform, educate, and entertain. Note that nothing in this podcast is investment advice, and it is for entertainment and discussion purposes only. Do your own due diligence before making any investment. Now, on to the show. Today, I'm speaking with Twitter personality, Citrini. He's a blogger at Citrini Research on Substack, and he's an avid poster on there. He looks for megatrends that will persist for years, if not decades, with wide-reaching implications for markets and society. So on this podcast, we're going to talk about some of those megatrends that he's identified and explore his opinions on them. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, VSC. Appreciate that. Yeah, thanks for coming on. So How'd you first get the bug? How'd you first get interested in investing? Well, you know, I sold a business around the time that I was like 27 and uh, kind of found myself, uh, you know, like it's not a good thing when you make a ton of money all at once and you're like young and you kind of have nothing to do <laughs> and you say, oh, you know, I don't really have to work anymore. And that's, you know, not a great thing. You should have something like keep your mind occupied. I'm kind of like trying to figure out what to do with this money. And everyone is saying, oh, you know, you need to find a financial advisor. And that was like way too much trust for me. And my neighbor at the time was like doing macro investing at Millennium and kind of started talking with him. And he basically started educating me and, you know, how to like trade my own book. Then I was speaking with a couple other people that were doing like fundamental long short, just like in my network of friends and kind of uh, the way that I saw it was like, you know, you have this, uh, these macroeconomic themes, both economic and also like the thematic equity kind of things. And then you have a uh, long short. And I kind of saw that this was a way, you know, you could combine these two kinds of uh, ways of looking at the market and make like a very uncorrelated, nice looking low volatility return stream. And that's what I've been doing since, you know, and uh, really just uh, trying to like look at because I had such a lateral way into like the world of investing and finance, I kind of uh, try to look at things in a way that you know, it's not necessarily taking consensus and taking the opposite side. It's just trying to look at things from, you know, I want to say like a point of common sense, right? Like uh, trying to find these mega trends essentially that are going to result in like crazy outsized returns. You know, like when you, uh, there's a statistic that like 40% of all shareholder returns come 1% of companies. And when you look at what those companies are, a ton of them kind of like fit into like very clear themes that went on for decades, you know? So it seemed to me that if you can find those themes, that's kind of the secret sauce, right? Cool. And when you identify one of these mega trends, how do you apply that to your investing? Are you looking for specific companies? Do you go long and go short? Like how do you actually apply those ideas when you've identified one of these trends? Yeah. So the thing is, you have these factors, right? Like you have a beta or you, so the US market or you know, you have momentum or value or quality or growth. And uh, when I find one of these themes, I kind of want to isolate it, right? Like I want to create an entirely new factor that surrounds this theme. And that means eliminating, you know, uh, like the correlation to these, uh, you know, like is the, this basket of stocks, is it going up just because there's a lot of, you know, growthy tech in it? Or is it going up because there's value? Or is it growing up because of momentum? I want to basically eliminate those and, and make sure that like the line is going up solely because this theme is proliferating through the economy. And because that also is like a valuable data point, right? Like if you have a basket of stocks that you believe truly reflects this theme and it starts going down and it's like continuously going down, you can, you know, that's kind of a signal. Maybe I should reevaluate whether this theme is really as big as I think it's going to be. So what I tend to do is I create a long short basket that'll, you know, the weighting is normally discretionary, sometimes equally weighted. And essentially every big theme, you know, throughout history, whether it's, you know, the industrial revolution or, you know, the internet, or semiconductors and computing, every theme has the companies that it helps, you know, benefits a ton, and then the companies that uh, ultimately it harms, right? If you think of the internet, uh, you know, how would Macy's be doing if the internet or specifically e-commerce never materialized, right? So I think the quintessential kind of uh, trade there would be, you know, like long Amazon, short Macy's. And then if you think about that kind of trade on like the dot-com internet e-commerce revolution, if you could basically create, uh, you know, 10 companies or 20 companies that reflect the beneficiaries, you know, the Amazons of uh, whatever the theme is. And then you have 10 or 20 companies that kind of reflect these are going to be, 
the losers, the ones that lose out. And kind of with that, you just by creating that basket, it kind of forces you to go deep enough to find out a company that's going to be harmed by a theme is a lot harder to find like a company that's going to be an obvious winner. You know, like if you think about the GLP one trade that I wrote about, I don't know if, uh, I know we haven't uh, covered that yet, but I did write about the uh, idea of like Ozempic and the secondary effects of that. It's kind of like if you have uh, the obvious winners, you know, Lily and Novo Nordisk, finding the losers is a little bit more difficult. You really have to get granular and you really have to look beyond, you know, like on the face of it, you'd say, oh, well, people are going to eat less. So, you know, maybe I should just short McDonald's. And, it's, you know, you have to actually understand the company. You don't want to short McDonald's because first off, McDonald's is a great company. And second off, a lot of the money that like McDonald's makes is not necessarily related to like how many calories people are consuming. So yep. from that, like the main thing that I went with was like CPAP machines, you know, like ResMed, because like 70% of people that have obstructive sleep apnea ROV. So that's kind of the idea. You create this basket that solely reflects the theme and then you can, you know, utilize the performance in itself as a signal. Yeah, that makes sense. Plus it can take a long time for these things to play out. I mean, with the physical retailers, like everybody in 2000 was talking about how these physical retailers are going to go out of business, like it was going to happen next year, but they still did pretty well for a decade. And it almost looked like that was a foolish trade until it wasn't, but it took 10 years. It took Absolutely. roughly 10 years to get there. All right. So let's talk about yeah, there's GLP. There's always a tipping point, right? Not to be like too Malcolm Gladwell pop psychology about it, but there's always like uh, the tipping point, right? And I think uh, if the theme is genuine, a lot of times it pays to be a little later to it than super early, right? I think that's true with a lot of things in the market. But if it's a true multi-decade, you know, I mean, like uh, with Ozempic, for example, you know, the semaglutide as a drug has been FDA approved since, uh, I want to say, 2019 or 2020 off the top of my head. And then uh, you have, like with AI, for example, you know, artificial intelligence, they've been working on artificial intelligence for a very long time, like specifically with these large language models since, uh, you know, I think 2015. and so it's like uh, you can't just jump on everything that pops up on your screen, right? Something where you have to actually be doing the work uh, to see where that tipping point is, where that inflection point is, that it's going to start actually, even if it's not actually genuinely affecting these companies yet, just the fact that like most market participants are going to believe they're going to start repricing you know, the future, how much money these companies are going to make because of this theme. Gotcha. Okay, so let's talk about the first trend you've identified, GLP-1s. So I have a basic question. How do GLP-1s work and are they a miracle drug? <laughs> I mean, I guess I'm going to have to ask you a question in return. I can answer the first part of that, but the second part would be define a miracle, right? So I mean, a miracle like, would what, be, what? right? I mean, 40% of America is obese right now. A miracle would be seeing right. it going down to 10% and all of a sudden our healthcare system dramatically changes. People live longer. I'd say that's a miracle and without any side effects because traditionally all weight loss drugs have had some Achilles heel, some terrible thing that some terrible side effect that happens. So I would say a miracle drug would be it works. It has wide ranging benefits to society and doesn't have any bad side effects. Well, you know, I mean, uh, like they said, I went to medical school for a very short period of time before I dropped out because I couldn't handle it. But I was very uh, passionate about medicine. And I do have like a, you know, I did work as a paramedic for a little bit. So I do, you know, there's a saying in medicine, the only difference between medicine and poison is the dose. And uh, the fact is like every single drug in the world has side effects, right? The only thing is, uh, you know, are the side effects worthwhile? Are you going to have more of a cost if you continue to experience the disease versus the cost of the side effects, you know, if you take the medicine? So, I mean, the way that I've kind of, so there was a lot more skepticism about this when I was talking about it in like, you know, earlier this year. And people, I think, have kind of started coming around. You can definitely see it in the market, how the markets responded. But the main thing is that Yes, there are side effects to these drugs. Obviously, every drug has a side effect. But in the majority of cases, it's mainly gastrointestinal side effects. And the thing is, like, the, once you have a, it, it's not a new class of drugs, right? Like, uh, Ozempic has existed since, you know, I think 2017. It's not a new class of drugs. And once you have a class of drugs that exists, you can kind of extrapolate what the side effects will be like. It's very, you know, it's more rare than not that if you create a new drug inside of a specific class of drugs, that you're like totally surprised by what the side effects are. So, in 2005, you had this uh, drug, Bietta, which uh, 
you know, the generic name is exenatide. And that was like, you know, the first FDA approved GLP-1 receptor agonist. And basically the way that these drugs work is they affect the endocrine system. They affect, uh, you know, your feeling of fullness. They affect uh, how quickly, you know, your gastric system empties. And overall, they also are going to affect you, like your insulin sensitivity, how your body metabolizes sugar. And they basically are going to make you feel full. They're going to reduce your appetite. You're going to eat less calories. And overall, you're kind of... Uh, you know, your overall, we have something called like metabolic syndrome or like in finance, they'll call it like diabetes, uh, which is like the words diabetes and obesity, like combined. And the, like just the fact, like there's a word for that, right? Like just the fact that we need the word diabetes kind of reflects how significant of a problem this is, you know, and like the overall cost just to like the U.S. economy from obesity, whether it's from like injury outcomes, workers comp, you know, sick days taken, just purely to productivity, it's immense. And then you have like the comorbidities, like the other diseases that come along with obesity, like diabetes, like sleep apnea, you know, like uh, mobility impairments, a whole host of uh, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, cardiac disease. And, uh, you know, what's going to happen over the next few years is Novo and Lilly, right now they kind of have a duopoly. They are going to basically go on like a data campaign. They're going to make sure that they come to market with these new studies that most of them, I assume, are going to basically be a study of like, how does Ozempic or how does, uh, you know, Lilly just had a new, they've had a drug called Munjaro that was approved for diabetes. They just got approval for a drug, the same drug, terzapatide. It's much more effective in terms of total body weight reduction than Novo's drug Ozempic. They just got it approved for weight loss under the name ZepBound. So they're basically going to hit the FDA with this data where it's like, it's going to benefit you, your lipid profile, your cholesterol, it's going to benefit your blood pressure, it's going to benefit your cardiac outcomes. Because the thing is, can you say like, oh, the drug is making people recover better from heart attacks? Probably is, right? Because it's making you lose weight. So that's kind of like a causation correlation thing. Mm -hmm. But regardless, they will come out with all of this data, and the FDA is going to say, oh, well, you know, uh, yeah, maybe this is now it's approved for like obesity when there's like an elevated risk of heart disease. And now it's approved for, you know, this, that and the other thing. And eventually insurance companies will come along too, right? Because the first reaction of any health insurer is going to be, you know, like they're, they're a company. They don't want to say, let's spend more money, right? But the insurance companies are going to go on a data campaign of their own. And they're going to say, how should we view this, right? Because they're going to do their classic like cost benefit analysis, just like every single insurer does. And once they do that cost benefit analysis and they see, you know, they will, once they have enough data to do this, they will see that overall the benefits of having your insured population not be morbidly obese over time, it's going to cost you a lot less money. You know, like it's going to be very accretive to your EBITDA. If you're like, not, if like this person is going to die of like natural causes in their sleep, rather than like be in the hospital, like after like a lifetime of like high blood pressure and diabetes, and they're going to have to get, you know, their leg amputated. And then they're going to have to like be on dialysis because their kidneys are shot because of high blood pressure. Like obesity is devastating. It's yeah. just because of the fact that we as a society kind of view it as we have like a very puritanical view where it's like a personal failing of like willpower. The, the mm -hmm. thing is, most diseases like science, you can't have a society that has like modern science, advanced medicine that is continuing to advance that medicine and then at the same time have a society where 40 percent of the population is affected by disease eventually that disease will be cured same thing happened with like syphilis or polio or it becomes a focus and then it's cured and eventually you know it could be 10 20 100 years I don't, like eventually cancer will be cured too so i think that when you ask is it a miracle drug well what i'll say instead is like uh it's a huge leap in the idea that like obesity is a disease that can be treated by medicine. I don't know if I would call it a miracle drug. There will be, you know, side effects that we haven't found yet, even though I think that that's pretty unlikely because we've kind of had these drugs for a long time, but it's going to accelerate. Right. And uh, it's kind of like, this is the edge, right? You have like uh, whole new classes of drugs, like with these peptides and with small molecule therapeutics and uh, it's going to get really exciting <laughs> and uh, it's going to, going to be pretty cool, I think, for like the human race. But, you know, that's kind of uh, where I stand on like the, is it a miracle drug thing? Okay. I think that's, if it works and it leads to reduced obesity rates, I think that's a miracle. Like, I think that one of our biggest problems right now in the United States is the percentage of GDP that we spend on healthcare. If we can meaningfully right. reduce that, that's a game changer for our economy. And then just the 
the human implications of being able to fix this problem that has that causes so many other health problems in people, uh, like it would just dramatically improve quality of life. So my opinion, that's a miracle. I, I said this on the Odd Lots podcast and I got like a ton of pushback for it. Like people were like, wow, you sound crazy. Like the thing is, we just had an epidemic, right? Which, you know, like, uh, or we had, well, I guess we had a pandemic, right? And uh, not, but like the obesity is an epidemic, right? It's like consistent, it's chronic, it's consistently affecting us. Why would we pay for COVID vaccines as a government and not for, like, if, you know, as the data comes out, as the data campaign concludes from Novo and Lilly and any other new entrants, let's just say hypothetically it's five years in the future and uh, we've kind of, we've established that these drugs are like generally regarded as safe and that they work for like reducing the obesity rate, which, you know, by the way, the obesity rate has like a, you know, like a thousand sharp, <laughs> like it just goes up, right? Like the mm -hmm. chart of the obesity rate never takes a drawdown. Yeah. It's like the Great Depression. And so the thing is like, why would the government pay for these COVID vaccines and not for GLP-1 drugs, right? Like if we have 40% of the population is obese, you, like you mentioned, the GDP cost of it, massive. And then, you know, plus like uh, the cost to the actual government, right? Like in the long term, that would save the government money. Yes. Just in terms of like what they spend on like Medicare, you know, I mean, uh, the government is a health insurer too, right? Medicare is a huge, is a huge component of the federal budget. If we could reduce that meaningfully, it's a game changer. Absolutely. And well, the other thing I do have to like throw a caveat in here, right? Because like, I'm not a scientist, I'm not a doctor. And you know, like it doesn't, I don't get paid to like, predict like what medicine is going to, the only times that I get paid is when it's specific to a company. And I will say that, especially when you're investing in these kinds of thematic equity, you know, mega trend, is it going to change the world or not? You get something called the Gardner hype cycle, right? Which is uh, the chart is like very you know, you think of a chart of like the dot-com bubble, right? Mm -hmm. But think of the chart of, because, uh, you know, with the, everyone kind of is, uh, they maligned the dot-com bubble, right? Like it was this gross period of irrationality. And it was, it was super rational. But there was also like, there was a nugget of rationality in there, right? Like sure. the internet did change. The world. Yes. And uh, so if you look at, you know, like uh, to come back to Amazon, right? Like you look at a chart of Amazon, it's like, okay, dot-com bubble goes parabolic, you know, thousand percent returns in like, I don't know, the course of like six years. And then, so that's basically like uh, you start having this awareness of it and slowly you kind of move to what the Gardner hype cycle caused the uh, peak of inflated expectations, right? You have like the technology trigger where people realize, oh, this is a thing that's going to change the world. And then immediately you have this like parabolic rise where like the kind of like winners and then the not really winners, just like hype names get bit up like crazy. And you reach this peak of inflated expectations where even the winners can't live up to these expectations, right? And uh, then you have the bust and that results, you know, goes down until you reach like the trough of disillusionment where everyone says, no, never mind, this isn't even a thing anymore. You know, this isn't going to change anything. And that's, you know, like, a, that's kind of why I like like the thematic equity thing is because if you're right in the beginning, you know, it's going to afford you, kind of like Soros said, right? Like a bubble gives investors three chances to make a ton of money. If you get long in the beginning of the bubble, you make a ton of money. If you know when to sell, right? If you get short at the peak of inflated expectations, you make a ton of money if you know when to cover. And then afterwards, like this trough of disillusionment when everyone is like, oh God, you know, this is, what were we thinking? This isn't going to change anything. You can get long there too and probably make a lot of money. And like the quintessential trade that I always have in my mind is like, like being long Amazon and short pets.com, right? <laughs> Where mm -hmm. it's like, uh, and that's kind of, you know, I think that these kind of thematic equity implementations, they require more hype that is kind of priced into them, the, the more of a delicate touch and like high touch kind of approach they require, because you don't want to get caught up in the hype. You know, you don't want to believe your own BS. And at the same time, you know, you want to make sure that you're, I think one of the best trades you can possibly do is like you have a long component that's like levered to a certain theme and it's a winner. And then you have like a short component that's like the price, the returns are levered to the same theme, but the company is like never actually going to benefit from the theme. And, you know, over like over time, markets are a weighing machine, you know, and then in the short term, you can kind of like ride out the voting machine stuff. Yeah, that makes sense. And I mean, the inflated expectations stage of the cycle is particularly interesting. I mean, during the internet bubble, people were talking like we were going to be where we are today in like 2004. That's the way people were talking back then. And everything they said came true. It just 
took a lot longer than they anticipated. So for these drugs, I mean, it almost sounds, my hesitation would be, it sounds too good to be true. Like there must be some problem in the mix. So what are, what are the potential issues? Well, let me just say, right, like, uh, let's say, you know, we weren't doing a podcast. We're just doing like a campfire talk and it's like, you know, like 1910 or something. And it's like, uh, you were uh, like, you know, let me set the scene, right? We're on like the frontier and we're like having a talk around a campfire. And I'm like, hey, this guy invented this drug called penicillin. You know, and it's going to cure all this stuff. And you're like, listen, man, you know, like, uh, assuming it's like 1930, right? Like, listen, man, I've lived, I've seen everyone that got syphilis, their face falls off. And then this guy shows up and he's wearing a candy striped hat. And he's like, you know, he's got the snake oil and he's like, hey, you know, this is going to cure everything. This is going to take care of your syphilis and it's all going to be good. And, you know, I've seen they take it and then their face still falls off, but they've got mercury poisoning, too. And just like everything gets worse and eventually the side effects come up. And even if it helps them in the beginning, you know, they're screwed. And I'm like, I'm not buying into that stuff. And it's like, I understand the skepticism because of the fact that, like, there are snake oil salesmen and then there are weight loss drugs that have, like, significantly bad side effects. But at the same time, you know, like... uh the medicine eventually cures stuff, right? Like the like I would not blame the, you know, us in the old West or whatever in nineteen thirty, you know, two years after penicillin is discovered for like being skeptical of it. But penicillin, you know, it did cure syphilis, right? Like so it's kind of like uh that's like my overall approach where it's like eventually there will be a cure. Of course like of course there are risks. Like with exenatide, there was like a very small risk with that specific drug of like uh thyroid cancer and then there was also a small like a small risk of pancreatitis right but like these things have not been reproduced in the newer generation of drugs and there's also the risk of like gastroparesis which is the fact that like these drugs slow your the emptying of your gastrointestinal tract so like if you had to go into surgery with and get anesthesia there's like a risk of aspiration and also like gastroparesis in general where you're not moving waste through your body and that can be bad and you know but the thing is like gastroparesis is also a side effect of diabetes so like mm-hmm. if you're obese chances are eventually you're going to develop gastroparesis and it's kind of like you know it's not easy to cure gastroparesis but it might be reasonable to say that like when you have a side effect that's like affected by that's like induced by a drug like with opioid narcotics you have a side effect that's like uh basically constipation and uh, you know we can't cure constipation but we can cure constipation when it's like directly a result of somebody taking narcotics Mm -hmm. so it's kind of like this is something where and then you know like the company that makes the drug maybe maybe lily takes you know the, the thing that's the antidote for this and you know it's like i think that the risks have been like especially in earlier this year they were super overplayed and uh again you know i'm not a doctor i'm just here to like make money by speculating on stocks so i think what like really we should be concerned with like what are the risks now you know like to these stocks you know and i think that like when i talk about like the long short implementation it's also nice to like you see like very huge overreactions because everyone, if you had a guy on this podcast that was like talking about, like told a really convincing story about like the cash flow and like the, the, you know, ROI of like a company that's like really great, like reinvesting and, you know, that they're very responsible and like, you know, it's a great company, right? Like people will get excited about that, but nothing captures the imagination, like, you know, like a story about a mega trend, right? So it's also an area that's kind of ripe for like overreactions. And like we spoke about earlier with like ResMed and Philips and these uh, CPAP sleep apnea machine companies, they will have like a direct hit to their revenue, right? And I think that they were a great short. You know, since I published the GLP-1 thing, they're down 60%, you know, ResMed's down 60% since then. And, but then there are other companies that have got hit, you know, like uh, ones that make like the insulin pumps, right? And uh, there's like very early, very early, almost like bordering on anecdotal. It was only like a 10 patient study that, uh, you know, semaglutide, Ozempic might be able to like replace both long acting and short acting. And, you know, that's crazy. And maybe that is true. But like the thing is to have, I mean, I was short insulin because of the fact that like less people with type 2 diabetes is going to hurt their revenue too. You know, like insulin index coming, I was short, but then I covered those shorts like about a month and a half ago because it just got crazy. You know, people were letting their imaginations get like taken on a ride with this stuff where it's like people, there will still be diabetics. And so that's kind of, that's another reason why 
I kind of enjoy this thematic kind of like uh, analyzing these trends because, like I said before, there are so many opportunities where, you know, you'll be paying attention to the theme and you'll be very educated about the theme. And then you can just look at a company and you can say, okay, I know, how, I, know I have a general idea how the theme is going to play out. And this is like a crazy overreaction to the downside. And you can kind of, you know, you were using it to like hedge overall and as a short and then you cover and you can get long. And like, that's what I did with like Dexcom and, and Pot uh, Inflet. So it's it, very interesting to keep an eye on these themes where you can, you know, find like which reactions are probably accurate. You know, I think that like the reactions to the upside and like Lily and Novo were probably accurate, although I like uh, Novo a lot less than Lily right now, just because I think the Zep bound is really, uh, you know, it's going to unseat a lot of like the, you know, Novo was the only company that had a GLP-1 drug that was FDA approved for weight loss. And now, you know, Lily had their drug that was approved for diabetes. And sure, some doctors were prescribing it off-label for weight loss, but now they have Zepbound, which is better than Ozempic. Well, you know, Ozempic is called Wagovi when it's used for weight loss, and it's better, just works better. It has less side effects. They'll be able to kind of, I think they'll probably unseat Novo's kind of dominance in this area. Uh, if you were to look at like a chart of prescriptions, you know, the Lily has kind of been lagging behind, but I think uh, Lily is going to take that pole position. You know, I think so. I think that those reactions have been warranted to the upside. And, you know, I think that Lily also had some crazy, crazy promising stuff in its pipeline. This, like, I'll just stick to the GLP-1 thing that, you know, they uh, one of the big concerns with GLP-1 drugs is the body composition stuff where it's, uh, you know, if, if it causes you to lose 20 percent of your body weight, but it's solely because of like severe caloric restriction and you lose the same amount of muscle that you do, you know, fat. And then, you know, if you put the weight back on or if you kind of like, like your body fat percentage might go up and like, that's not great for like outcomes and health. You don't want your body fat percentage to go up. So the idea is Ozempic, that they need to combine the GLP-1 drug with like something else that like encourages more of the weight loss to be fat. Right. And they have this drug Lily just acquired this company called Versanus, and they have this drug called Bimigramab that, like, in trials, when it's combined with a GLP-1 drug like Terzapatide or semaglutide, it results in an 11% reduction in body weight, but a 4% increase in lean muscle mass. So, I mean, that's like a, that's like a cheat code. Like, you know, nobody is going to want to take that. And it's, uh, you know, like, uh, that's, like, why I think, like, Lily definitely deserves to be up here just because their future looks super bright right now. And then you can look on the other side and like, you know, Dexcom didn't really deserve to be like hit as hard as it did because Dexcom's a huge company. And uh, same thing with like Insulet, like it was just a gross overreaction. You know what I mean? Gotcha. Yeah. So one of my concerns, I've always wanted to own a lot of junk food stocks. They've always been too expensive. Basically, we're thinking like Pepsi, McDonald's, Coke, like these have always been almost perfect businesses. They are tiny repeat purchases with a huge markup. Customers have brand loyalty. There's recession resistance. People don't cut potato chips during a recession. So is this business, is this industry of junk food, is this about to be completely ruined by this? No, no. Like, uh, first off, the companies will adapt, right? Like if if, uh, the junk food company sold plenty of food in like 1950 when the obesity rate was like 10%. Right. You know, like people will still eat. They will just eat less. And I think that, you know, uh, it's kind of like an Athens razor thing where it's like, oh, maybe, you know, the, all these like junk food companies were selling off because of GLP ones and stuff. And, you know, maybe that was the reason why some people were selling. But it was also like Staples had a crazy high multiple. And it's kind of interesting yes. to me because, you know, I do like a, like with my, my long short book that's kind of focused on like thematic equity. And then I do like a global macro overlay, which is like, you know, tra- just trading like macro markets, like rates and SIR and, and FX and stuff. And uh, so I pay pretty close attention to like macroeconomic indicators. And it seems like basically you had like staples and healthcare and they were trading at like stupid high multiples because of the fact that everyone was like, oh, I need to be defensive. Right. You know, utilities too, right? And you should be defensive because the recession is coming. And then all last year, it was like, you know, if you didn't like believe the hype, it was pretty obvious. Like the recession was not coming yet. You know, like still the economy was super strong. And, uh, you know, you got some really great opportunities from that. And it's kind of like now that premium, that like recession premium that was placed on like staples, especially tra- making a trade of like ridiculous multiples, it got erased. And it got erased like maybe just in time for the actual recession to come. <laughs> yeah. So do you think that let's say that these these stocks are really hurt where the multiple comes down in a major way due to the GLP ones? Do you think that that could potentially be an opportunity? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, like, uh, 
you know, don't get me wrong. Yeah, it's still to be like picky with it, right? Like same thing with like the fast food restaurants where it's like, if you have a company that is making up most of its margin on the, like a low margin company that makes the most of its money on volume and just is serving like crazy calorically dense food that's just like, in, you know, like piles, you know, like uh, I'm not going to like say specific tickers here, because, but like you have to be picky about it. And like, you know, it's a good idea. Just, you know, I, yeah. Is, is it a risk factor for some of these companies? Sure. Like if 90% of your customers are like obese people who are buying like crazy volumes of food, I wouldn't want to be long that company, you know, but like same thing with the junk food stuff, right? Like if you're like, I probably, I don't know, I probably wouldn't buy like Twinkie, right? And like Hostess brands, I probably wouldn't buy. But like, you know, there are some great deals in like, you know, packaged food. And I think that it's also like a good time economically to start considering being along a little bit more defensive stuff. Maybe, you know, thinking about like, what if we get, you know, not necessarily recession, but like a slight economic slowdown or like a growth scare. It might be worth, you know, looking into some of those things as deals. I personally think that like the, I don't think that that sell-off was like GLP-1 related. I just think that that was like a nice story that like the news was really, you know, because it's like, uh, like you're asking me the question, right? Like when I explained to you, oh, you know, 70% of people have obstructive sleep apnea because of obesity. And there's a drug here that like, you know, three years ago, zero people were taking it. And now like, you know, one and a half, almost 2% of the population is taking it and it can make that rate go down. You'd be like, yeah, like that company is going to do less revenue. Right. And, and, uh, you know, like, like you can go deeper into like penetration and stuff and, and see, uh, you know, if the obesity rate goes down to, you know, 30%, like what, what does their revenue look like? You can actually model that. Right. But we don't know like how, you know, people might still buy junk food and then just not eat as much of it. It might end up like being in that benefit. Maybe these companies can get away with like selling less food for the same amount of money, you know? So I think that that was pretty much an overreaction. And I don't think it was actually a reaction to the GOP one stuff at all. Gotcha. Cool. So another trend you've identified is U.S. fiscal primacy, where you can right. correct me if I'm misstating anything here, but... You believe that the massive amounts of stimulus that we've seen in the last few years is going to, is here to stay, that both parties are kind of on board with spending vast amounts of money and that that will ultimately flow into corporate profits. So do I have that right? Right. Yeah. I mean, well, the, you know, you said like two things and, you know, the first thing definitely correct, like you described like kind of what I think. The second thing about like deficit spending flows into corporate profits, that's not like what I think. That's like something called Kalanicki profit equation. It's like an accounting truth, right? Like if you take the equation for like how this works, it's, if you if you do deficit spending, it's going to end up as corporate profits. Mm -hmm. Kind of like how, you know, so yeah, I do think that. I think like the, uh, I think that like there were populist undercurrents already in like the U.S. economy that you know, like we shifted from like this laissez-faire, you know, there was like, I don't think that anyone in the conservative party is like reminiscent of like a Tea Party conservative right now. And there were these populist certain undercurrents that kind of got magnified by the pandemic, not necessarily like they weren't there before, they're, they're, they were there and they just kind of got magnified. And the thing is like, when you have an election and like economy that's kind of, you know, driven by populism, it becomes like a lot more important to make people just like you. And the best way to do that is to like give them money, you know, like uh, keeping the economy that obviously mattered for every presidential candidate ever. But we've kind of entered this thing where it's been acceptable from the point of view of both parties and to bend in a manner that's not really consistent with the way it's been before. And, you know, I mean, article that I wrote this up in uh, was Steve Moran and Steve Ho, who are both like actual economists, right? They're not like doing economics a little bit to play the market. It's like 70 pages long. So it's a bit difficult to like describe every single point in like a podcast format. Yeah. Uh, but I would definitely recommend checking it out if you want. Like, I think that it's going to be significant. I think that although like the, it's a little bit tricky right now, because like I was saying with the economic slowdown, most of the beneficiaries of like this uh, consistent fiscal impulse are cyclical. So, but recently we just kind of, you know, we had a pretty significant sell-off that gave like a pretty good opportunity to get, like, I think the, one of the prototypical kind of beneficiaries of this in like the fiscal spending, the whole infrastructure theme. I mean, you know, America's infrastructure is doing not great is like putting it lightly, uh, but you have a company like Eaton and uh, you have like a sell-off that, you know, brought Eaton down below like 200 bucks a share. And in terms of like most of the money that like was put into the economy from like the uh, IIJA and the IRA, it hasn't really hit yet, right? Like it's going to continually unlock a lot of it's going to unlock in 2024. And I know that, uh, you know, in an efficient market that like should be priced in already, but like 
I mean, come on, right? So I think it'll be interesting. We're going to see a lot of earnings from some of these like fiscal beneficiary companies that I think estimates will be a little bit low because of the fact that uh, I don't think they're accounting for the impact of this money that's about to flow through. But at the same time, again, if we get an economic slowdown, you don't really want to be long like infrastructure and construction. So it'll be interesting. And, uh, you know, like uh, it's right about that time, like the end of the year where you start like looking at everything instead of like just the things that you own, you know, every single year at the end of the year, I, I do something where, you know, just looking at everything, right? And like uh, looking at like the overall economy is a big part of that. And so I'm writing that up right now, but it'll be interesting. Yeah. So I agree that on the political side of things that the Democrats and the Republicans have completely seemed to have given up on the idea of being an adult controlling spending. Like under Trump, you probably had the biggest orgy of spending we've ever seen during COVID. There was the crazy tax cut that happened. And then the Democrats are in and they just like almost throw gasoline on the fire. No one seems to care anymore. There used to be some pushback. Like there used to be some I don't know that people would. Right. It was like at least one party. There was like the Tea Party, right? And it's like you know, like maybe nobody was ever like going to vote him into power, but at least like they were there and they had a representation. They would be like, no, you know, <laughs> right? And it seems it seems to be over. But I guess my concern would be if you're going to make a bet on this theme that they're going to keep spending money. Like, what is the end game of it? Are we just going to have extremely high inflation? Will there be some kind of debt crisis? Like, does some kind of bad effect of all of the spending does that worry you i mean that's like a very like economics question in terms of like like difficult to answer because like this is a whole debate that like even professional economists can't you know like there's a i'll like shout out a couple of people that maybe like to have a better answer like steve, steve moran on twitter like uh or steve how great uh, economists who actually probably can answer this question but uh also there's an account uh a web account on twitter i forget uh i think his name's alex uh alex williams i think and uh he has a series of charts called frying pan charts that kind of show like the uh you know it's like gdp and and wages and you know all these charts that uh, really have to do with like the real economy and uh the reason it's called frying pan is because you have like a trend you know if you think of like a you know y equals mx plus b chart uh kind of like going up in a diagonal line and you know like trend of, you know consistent with trend wage growth and then you have the global financial crisis and like the fiscal austerity measures that followed it and it kind of dipped whether like two percent below trend three percent below trend and then instead of returning to the trend kind of like uh you would expect it stays down there and it just starts a new trend line like it's like it, it shifts the parallel shifts down and then it starts climbing again but it doesn't climb back to the trend it just is climbing up like parallel with the trend and then those charts didn't like they didn't really reconcile back to that original trend that was in place before the gfc until you had like this very outsized fiscal spending measure from covid and uh so you know, and then there are people on the other side uh, that think that it's going to, you know, not end great. Like, you know, Marco Papich on wrote a book called Geopolitical Alpha. The, he calls it the Buenos Aires consent, you know, and uh, the idea that like inflation will be kind of structurally higher because of like this consistent fiscal spending and this consistent like impulse towards economic growth at any cost. And, you know, the economy can have a recession. But so, you know, again, like I said before, it's like I... I'm not an economist, just like I'm not a doctor, I'm not an economist. I'm just here to like speculate on stuff to make money. So I'm not like, I, what the outcome is going to be in 10 years, I don't know. So your position is more like, I know for a fact that government spending is going to be high for at least a few years. So I'm going to right. make it's that money, bet. it's going gotcha. into the economy, it's going to companies and, you know, like uh, the companies will make more money because of it. So I should own the company. You know, <laughs> it's like, right. I mean, it's our money they're spending anyway, right? <laughs> Without necessarily like trying to predict where that's going to be 10 years from now, you're more interested in what's going to happen in the next few years. Yeah, I mean, and also the other thing is like, uh, I'm pretty dedicated to like being apolitical. Uh, you know, like I saw a lot of traders that got absolutely blown out because like Trump got elected and then they were like fading into, oh, yeah. even though, you know, like, you know what happens when a Republican president wins, they're like fading everything in the US and then they just get run over. And then the same thing, you know, you, like one of the best investors ever, Stanley Druckenmiller, right? Like he is an FX trader at heart, right? He broke the Bank of England with George Soros and one of the best traders to ever live. And even he has, you know, like his political bias and it kind of blinded him to the massive trade being long the dollar in, you know, like the end of 21 to in 22, where you had like this huge run up in the dollar against everything. And uh, because he was like, like, because he's like, oh, you know, like the Biden administration and Jerome Powell and, uh, you know, so 
I try to stay completely apolitical. I never really have a view on whether like what the government is doing is right or wrong because like, gotcha. I can't afford to, right? I just kind of like, I just play it for what it is. Yeah, you're right. Politics can really ruin you if you have those strong opinions and you bring them into your investing. And Trump's a great example of that. There was actually in the new book, Going Infinite, about SBF, there's an interest. there's a funny passage where he basically gets the data ahead of CNN and all the networks to predict what's going to happen right. with the election. And he realizes Trump is going to win before anyone else does. But then right. they directionally make the wrong bet. They're like, oh, well, the market's going to crash, obviously, because Trump won was right. their attitude. And then the complete opposite happens. So, yeah, it just yeah, shows where, how. Where, like, if you're keeping it simple and you're just like, oh, like the Republican candidate won, U.S. indices are going to moon. <laughs> like, you know, it's like, mm -hmm. like, like you don't need like a galaxy brain quant to know that, right? Right. But they were just kind of blinded by their biases yep. that, of course, Trump's victory will be terrible for, for the market. But yeah, exactly. It, so, so like I say, you can't afford to do that. It's, uh, you know, like if you're constantly operating in financial markets, you can't really, you really should not. I mean, some people can do it. I've seen some people that have very strong political opinions and then kind of manage to compartmentalize that. I know for a fact I can't. Yeah. And I mean, on the other side of it, you have all of like the right wingers who would have thought in 2009, well, this Obama guy is going to bring us into socialism. So why would mm -hmm. I ever get long U.S. markets? And that was that was also a terrible bet. Absolutely. Yeah. One of the things that Marco Papage talked about in his book was what I think he was, it was either at BCA or Schrapper or something. And uh, like uh, the person that he was working with sent out like the missive after Obama was elected that was like, what's going to be the difference between Obama and Bush? And he was like, not that much. And everyone was like, you know, you have the Democrats and they were so mad. And then you mm -hmm. have the Republicans, they were so mad. And it turned out like, yeah, no, pretty much. <laughs> that was basically right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> So another trend you've talked about is artificial intelligence. So I guess my first question is, is AI hype? Is this the real deal? Are these just more powerful computers and softwares? Or is this truly the game changer that people are saying it is? I think that, you know, it's it's a significant step forward in technology, right? Like Like before large language models, if you wanted to like talk to a computer in human language, like good luck, right? Like, like you ever use theory, like, like it's a, you have like NLP and it kind of sucked. And uh, now, you know, you have artificial intelligence and these large language models and it's, it's uh, advancing at like a breakneck pace, right? Like, like it's gotten a, a lot better very quickly. You know, the pool of companies that are going to benefit from it, it's kind of interesting here because, you know, like I was saying before, you have like longs that you want to, you know, own that are going to like hopefully win. And then you have shorts that kind of, you know, they're that that like will lose. Right. And if you think like the GLP one thing where it's like, you know, you have like this company that's like directly negatively affected by this development. Well, in AI, you can have companies that might be able to benefit from AI. But the fact is that like AI is incredibly expensive and maybe they don't have the CapEx capacity to, you know, spend on AI that's going to be as, as, you know, that's going to be very good just because the compute is so expensive. And, you know, you can like buy a company that has enough money to like spend the CapEx on doing AI because the thing is like the companies that, that are competing with them, even if they don't have like the CapEx capacity to kind of like do it to the fullest extent, they're still going to do it, right? Because you can't like be in a business where there's technological development and your closest competitor is, you know, uh, like, like releasing these products that, you know, everybody kind of wants now and, and uh, then you just don't, you know, that's like putting yourself at a direct disadvantage. So the companies that have reduced CapEx capacity to keep up with this kind of, they still will try and they'll probably suffer for it. So that's kind of interesting. You have like the dual dynamic there. Then there are some companies that probably, you know, AI will harm. You have like Chegg was like the quintessential one. And then you had a huge, like I was talking about earlier, you had a huge opportunity in AI, like the hype to basically short all these names that uh, were not going <laughs> to fit, you know, and uh, that was a very quick trade. It happened a lot quicker than I thought it would. It, I think that AI is obviously real. The demand is there, especially on the compute side. I mean, you know, like uh, you had uh, like Upstart, right? That was like rallying. And the reason that they were saying was like because of AI. I published uh, like a basket of AI shorts around like, you know, the middle of, middle end of June. You know, Upstart was on there. And then Upstart rallied like another 100%. It's kind of like, you know, but the thing is, if you're already long a basket of like actual genuine beneficiaries, you can kind of progressively short this hype, you know, not to the point where like you're getting, you know, you know, super run over, but you do have already that exposure to the theme 
that you're comfortable holding no matter what, because, you know, like these are quality companies. And then, you know, you can like progressively short upstart has got to, I think got to play 72. And then, you know, eventually collapses because, you know, like upstart isn't going to like be this huge beneficiary just because like large language models got a little bit better and like more accepted, but it is a, it's a big deal. It's uh, it's going to make like Microsoft a lot of money. It's going to make NVIDIA a lot of money. And, you know, is the trade over? I don't think that like the trade's over. I think that the companies that were going to make money, you know, from this in January is still going to make more money because of it. And the companies that are harmed are still probably going to be harmed. But uh, the thing is kind of when you're looking at it, you know, it's more like a buy on weakness type thing. Like with uh, the specific semiconductors that benefit from AI, you had like a huge, you know, well, not huge, but like significant, you know, NVIDIA drew down like, I think almost 20%. And, you know, like I, I bought that, right? And, uh, and I posted something that was like very scary to say on Twitter that was like, uh, I don't think a video will ever go below $400 again. And people like, uh, you know, that's like a very bold statement to make. And, you know, will it be wrong? Maybe. But like, it did go up from like 400 to 500 in like, you know, two weeks. So, uh, but you know, it'll, I think that overall, the idea is like AI is here. It's real. It's going to increase demand for compute is uh, whether companies find a way to monetize this and, and like genuinely commercialize it within the next, you know, six months to a year, or whether that's something that, uh, you know, kind of it needs to evolve first until, you know, we start seeing the real, real commercial benefit. That'll be something that we'll have to wait and see. But I do think that you want to be like buying the genuine beneficiaries of artificial intelligence, at least, you know, the picks and shovels type names, you know, to be like super cliche. Although I was saying that a lot, like way before everyone, you know, everyone else was like, oh, the AI picks and shovels kind of become like a cliche now. But uh, I think you still want to like, if if you've got them, you hold on, you know, if there's significant weakness, you know, uh, we see that like, uh, if we see something that brings us to like that trough disillusionment, it would probably be worth a buy there too. Gotcha. Yeah. And I have no doubt that the business of NVIDIA will do well in the future. It's for me, I just can't get comfortable with the valuation. But the stock I do own is Taiwan Semiconductor. So Taiwan Semiconductor trades a pretty reasonable 13 times enterprise multiple. Uh, You know, I thought that that was a pretty compelling opportunity. I bought it like a year ago. Now it's at a forward P of about 20. What do you think about TSM as a as an AI play? I mean, the thing is, like, uh, is TSM going to, like, do more volume because of AI? Yeah. Like, overall, you know, over the course of the company, of course. The one that, like, uh, you know, I I get, like, the idea, like, you know, you want to be along the boundaries. NVIDIA has to make these chips. They can't make them without, like, the co-os and, like, the packaging, the, the, you know, advanced packaging and, like, TSM's, you know, ability to be the foundry and any competitors that arise you know we just saw like the news that sam altman uh was like courting sovereign wealth funds to uh invest in like a startup that would create chips to compete with nvidia and like that will happen right like like uh if you're microsoft or meta eventually you know nvidia has like a stranglehold on this market and if you're microsoft and you have a ton of money sitting there you're like well, you know, we can't compete with NVIDIA right now, but yeah. if we start now in, you know, five years, six years, seven years, we'll have ASIC, you know, application-specific integrated circuits for AI that we can use to kind of compete with NVIDIA. So yeah, TSM probably will see increased demand. It's just a matter of like how marginal that's going to be and like whether, I mean, because TSM is huge, right? <laughs> and also there's like uh, kind of like this geopolitical risk premium that uh, I would probably be happy to earn. I don't think that like China's going to invade Taiwan anytime soon, but it's kind of of something that uh you know i think that tsm is probably worth you know i i don't know i i probably wouldn't buy it right now but i think like if it got cheaper it would be something that i would seriously look at just uh it just seems like something where you don't have that it's and it's also tsm is like very very levered to the overall economy right like because they're kind of like the chip supplier to the world you know right yeah i mean there's uh, there's definitely a cyclical element there you know, there were a lot of companies, you know, I guess it's kind of getting less now, but there were a lot, a lot of companies that you could have bought like back in May that like will benefit from AI that were actually pretty cheap. I know I probably should have, but you know, like Anet, for example, you know, like, like Arista, it was, uh, I think it was at like 140, the P was like, I think it was trading at like a 21 P, P for four P and you know, that's like a, that's kind of like growth at a reasonable price, you know? I think it's, you know, it's, it's a lot more expensive now, but I think, uh, you know, if you look through kind of like the companies that really genuinely are going to benefit from artificial intelligence, there are a few in there that are 
still kind of cheap, you know, not necessarily cheap, but, uh, you know, I think uh, with TSM, what I would actually uh, like more than TSM is probably Intel, you know, because of like, uh, you do have like the fiscal kind of impulse thing with the chips act and, you know, you have that like geopolitical risk premium that's being placed on TSM. Well, like who's going to benefit from that like geopolitical risk? It's going to, you know, like the U.S. government will ensure that like like we need these kind of like guardrails in place. We basically need to be able to like rely on it. We need it's kind of like with energy in you know the 70s. You need to you need to become energy independent. Well, we need to become like semiconductor independent. So I think you know Intel has always been like a rough hold, like been not fun to to own. I owned it. I, it. It kicked my butt. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I think like uh, you know, I I think it's something that kind of. You know, I mean, I, I've been buying it and, you know, it's, uh, it's done a little bit better now, but uh, I think that Intel, the tailwinds are kind of undeniable, you know, and it, I mean, again, you know, like with, you know, I was writing about the AI stuff in, in May, you know, so a lot of, uh, I don't necessarily have like a fresh batch of, of stocks to, to like say, oh yeah, this, because it's kind of like, I own the ones that I own. I'm not very, very aggressive with like, like once I'm allocated to a team, I kind of like, uh. I'll like buy, you know, like on weakness or sell when things get silly and like, you know, change the allocation. But I, I try to become very, very familiar with what I own rather than like seek out new new stocks, what like interest theme. But uh, I think, you know, if I had to pick one, I'd probably pick Intel. Cool. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast today. Uh, before we wrap up, is there anything that you'd like to add for the audience? Uh, what are some of the best places to read your content? Oh yeah, you can uh, you can check out uh, you can follow me on Twitter um, at Citrini Seven, and then you can check out uh, CitriniResearch.com. I tend to publish you know uh, three mega trend deep dives a, a year, uh, and then I also do you know macroeconomic overviews, market memos, and then like uh, keeping up with the updates surrounding those trends. You know, I think uh, the we have like an overall portfolio. Uh, like I, I jokingly call it the Citrindex. That kind of whenever I publish, uh, whether it's about a theme or a specific stock, like with uh, Celestica was a single stock that I wrote up before, or uh, recently, like a month ago, I wrote up uh, Ox as a short. Basically, what the portfolio does is it maintains an equal weighting to everything that I've written about, and then it only rebalances when I write about something new. And uh, that's up like 40% since May. So it's, uh, you know, like, uh, obviously, that's not like to be expected in the future, necessarily. But uh, it's been a pretty good uh, resource, I think, for my subscribers so far. So worth checking out. All right. Awesome. Well, thank you for your time today. Thanks a lot. You have a good one. You too. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. For more information, please go to securityanalysis.org. Subscribers to the website get early ad-free access to podcast episodes in addition to weekly in-depth profiles of companies.